Well, thank you anyway for taking the risk of having a bushwhacker like me. I'm actually a bushwhacker. If you didn't know what one of those is or are, I come from the bush, from a place called Babikin. Who's heard of Babikin? Nobody. One person, my wife, my daughter, three people have heard of Babikin. It just shows you how little they learn today in school. You've never heard of Babikin. Babikin is on the other side of the Darling Range between Bruce Rock and Corrigan. Now, a few of you might have heard of Bruce Rock and Corrigan. If not, it's halfway to Kalgoorlie. Okay? You've heard of Kalgoorlie? Good. That's basically where I come from. Somebody from the other side of Australia there has never heard of Kalgoorlie. Uh, well, that's where I came from. Grew up there on a wheat and sheep farm, and also we grew pigs as well. So that shows you that I'm not from a Jewish background. And I'm also not from a believing Christian background. But at a very, very young age, I had an interest in Israel, and that came because of Australian military involvement in the Middle East. And I had uncles who had served there. Many of you have had uncles and relatives who have served in the Middle East. Um, actual fact, the Middle East, Egypt, Israel, Syria, it's the only region in the entire world where Australian soldiers fought and served during both world wars. Very interesting, isn't it? That's the only region we served in during both world wars, a country large in size, small in population, a long way away, and yet during two world wars, that's the only region our soldiers served in. And so as a young kid, I got interested in the subject matter, began to read lots of books on the subject and became more and more interested. An Israeli family came to the other side of the Darling Range in 1966 and came to live in Babikin for two years. Now, we never saw foreigners. We used to think, you guys, you city slickers, we used to think you were foreigners. We would ask you to sort of change your uh, accent a little bit when you came down to the bush. So to have an Israeli family there for two years was quite extraordinary. And so I grew to know a bit more about Israel at the age of 10. I had an encyclopedia set which had lots of material about the Holocaust. And I think I was about 11 or 12 when I purchased a book on Treblinka, concentration camp. So... Um, from no Christian background, no Jewish background, the interest in Israel continued to grow. And then ultimately I came to Perth and went to Scotch College for two years and I had to sort of speak a little bit like you guys in order to be understood down there. And then I went to UWA to do a, um, a studies in history, a BA in history, and I didn't like uh, the university and I thought, no, I want to actually go and see the areas that I'm interested in. So I pulled out of university, much to the chagrin of my parents, and went back to the farm, worked as a rouseabout in a shearing team to save money, went overseas in the age of 21. I couldn't wait to get on the aeroplane. Actually, in fact, I ran to the aeroplane to get on it. I couldn't wait to get out of here. Because by that stage of my life, I felt that there had to be an answer to life, and I really didn't feel I could find it here. Wherever I was, well, I was in the bush, I didn't feel I fitted there because it wasn't really macho enough to be a bush boy. And if I came down here, I didn't really feel I fitted here as well. So I didn't fit anywhere. But from a very young age, I felt I would fit in Israel. And so when I finally left Australia to go there at the age of 21 in 1978, my goal was to go to Israel. My goal was to find the answer to life. So I finally got to Israel, I travelled around Europe for a year, did what most bushwhackers do when they go to Europe with a few dollars in their pocket. Didn't take long for those dollars to dwindle away, I have to confess. So I lifted up 
pie in the hog, so to speak, for a year, but finally got to Israel at the beginning of 1979, and the very instant the aeroplane landed, I felt at home. Not from a Jewish background, nor from a Christian background, yet I felt at home. And so from that time onwards, I was on a journey. What was so significant about Israel, and what had caused me as a, from a young age to be interested in Israel? That quest took me um, into a few interesting directions. At one stage, I wanted to become an Israeli. I wanted to serve in the army. And I was told the only way to do that would be to become an Israeli. No worries, said I. How do I become an Israeli? You convert to Judaism. No worries, said I, says the naive bush boy. And so I began to contemplate conversion to Judaism. Not from many religious perspective, but only in order to become an Israeli, to serve in the army, and to become part of something that I felt was tangible. You see, there, the Israelis are a group of people who came together from over 120 nations. They're a group of immigrants, basically, in many regards. Many of them survived the Holocaust, had survived conflicts, had survived all different sorts of traumas. And they're from so many different backgrounds. The um, the answer or the, the um, statement is you have two Israelis, you have three arguments or you have three uh, different perspectives or there are six million prime ministers in Israel. So a very argumentative group. However, there was still something that cemented them together. And I could see that there was something that cemented this group together and I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to belong. Thankfully... Before I really jumped into this process of conversion, I realized it wasn't for me. It was all to do with religion. There was another person on the kibbutz at the time who was converting to Judaism for the same reasons. But he was a real soldier. I was just a, a play soldier. I just wanted to sort of go that way in order to become an Israeli. And this guy, Andy, explained to me what was involved, showed me the big, thick books I had to read. And I started to go through them, and I suddenly realized this is all about religion. And I wasn't interested in religion. I wasn't looking for a religious experience. I'd already been around Europe for a year. I'd gone to every cathedral that you could think of, every town I went to. Before I went to the pub, I went first of all to the cathedral, just to make sure I had my cultural experience. Went to the Vatican, was disgusted with the Vatican, and wrote so in my diary. Went to Israel, went to all the cathedrals there are in Israel, and the big centres that uh, a built where they believe Jesus was born or Jesus was crucified and so on and so forth. Went to all the religious things from the Jewish people. So religion never interested me one little bit. I was searching for something else, but I still didn't know what it was. So I pulled out of the race. And when I pulled out of the race, so to speak, pulled out of the, the journey to become an Israeli by converting to Judaism, I fell into a hole. So I had a goal. My goal was to do this and this and this, but then suddenly the carpet was taken from under my feet. I had nothing else to go for. I still wanted to live in Israel, but now the avenue to get there was gone, and I had nothing to hold on to. I didn't come from a Christian background, so I couldn't hold on to Jesus. I didn't come from a Jewish background, so I couldn't hold on to the possibility of becoming an Israeli just by descent. So I fell into a big black hole. And I don't think I'd been into a big black hole like that before in my entire life. And I really was struggling. And I remember I was working in the kibbutz. I was working with a guy called Yuval. And Yuval was one of the military, modern military heroes of Israel. He had been on the Entebbe raid, if you've heard of the Entebbe raid. 
when they went to Uganda and retrieved all the uh, Jewish uh, hostages. And Yuval and I knew each other quite well. I remember I was working in the, the cow sheds one day, and he came and he says, Kelvin, you're so sad. You used to be full of life. You're so sad. What is the problem? And I couldn't give him an answer. And so I was in a bit of a hole, and obviously I called out, just like some other people in the scriptures, when they were in a hole, they called out. God must have heard my voice, because within a very short time, a Christian came to the kibbutz. Kibbutz was a collective farm that I was on, and began to speak to me about Jesus. And I said, I'm not interested in this Jesus. You see, for me, Jesus was the same as what I saw in the cathedrals. That was the face of Jesus to me, religion, Christianity, the church, the priests, the men wearing frocks, all that sort of stuff that did nothing for me. And I said, no, if there's a God, is a God of Israel and the Jewish people, not of you hypocrite Christians. And um, so she had no choice but to be quiet and to pray. So lesson number one, if you're talking to family members or loved ones, don't continue to preach when they put up the barrier, just pray. And prayer does work. On that occasion, we went to Jerusalem. This was 1981. I followed this particular Christian volunteer and a few others to Jerusalem. In 1981, Easter and Passover fell at the same time. We went to a place called the Garden Tomb. The Garden Tomb is outside the walls. So it would have been outside the walls at the time when Jesus was crucified. Beautiful garden. There's a, a tomb there. So it could have been the place. Probably it wasn't. It doesn't matter. We're not worried about where something happened. We're just worried about the fact that it did happen. And so on this occasion, there was an Anglican minister with a dog collar. And I thought, oh. Six o'clock in the morning, the dawn service. And this man got up and he preached a message which turned my life upside down. He preached about Jesus being a Jew. Jesus being the Passover lamb. This is Easter and Passover on the same weekend. And how the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, something which I could see and I heard and I experienced, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel would come before the return of Jesus to Jerusalem. So suddenly my either-or theology was thrown out the window because this Anglican minister was bringing it all together. And I guess subconsciously, I thought about this afterwards, what happened? Well, obviously, it was the appointed time. There was a message for me at that time, and I'm sure many of you can relate to not exactly the same situation, but the same principle. But I thought it may be this. I was so interested in Israel. I had a very fun relationship with Israelis. Didn't have so much contact then with Arab people. Later, I did, but with Israelis. And so I guess I thought subconsciously, when this man said that Jesus was a Jew, and I must have heard of that before, but it never entered onto my radar screen. But if Jesus was a Jew, if he was alive then, in 1981, he would be an Israeli. I like Israelis, so therefore. <laughs> and I guess that is something which must have been going on. And I could not escape from that reality. My life has changed. I didn't at that stage repent and accept Jesus as my Lord and Messiah. That happened three months later in the UK. But at that stage, when that message was preached, my life was changed, and I couldn't run away from it. And three months later, I did finally 
surrender my life and I entered into covenant with Jesus, the Jew. And that's an important factor for us to remember. You see, Jesus is the Son of God, but he came incarnate, born incarnate as a man. And that man has a body. He's still in heaven now as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he came as a real person. And we come to believe in Jesus. We don't come to believe in a figment of the imagination, in a doctrine, in a church, in a denomination. We come to believe, or a religion, we come to believe in a person. And more than that, we actually come into covenant union with a person. It's not just a matter of belief. There's a lot more to it than that. Soon after I came to follow Jesus, or give my life to Jesus, or come with the covenant with Jesus, I returned back to Israel. I was only in the UK for a short time, and I went back to Jerusalem in the end of 1981, and thus began a life of being a believer, a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem, and I remained being in Israel, in Jerusalem then, for close to 24 years. And soon after, I met my wife, Lexi, and the Lord gave us four beautiful daughters who were all born there. But one of the first scriptures that I read that really impacted me after I committed my life to Jesus was a wonderful scripture, a foundational scripture in Jeremiah chapter 31. So if you have your Bibles there, can I ask you to open up to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 36. This scripture so impacted me that I would say that this is the foundation of my personal life, even more so than John 3.16. Many people recite John 3.16. Well, John 3.16 didn't do anything for me. This scripture did. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, many times as Christians, we stop there. Part of the reason may be because twice... The writer of the book of Hebrews stops there. But in actual fact, the scripture doesn't stop there. There's a part B. What we just read was part A. Part B is verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the decrees of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those decrees, what decrees? The sun for a light by day and the moon and the stars for a light by night. 
If those decrees depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. You see, this portion of scripture we've just read from chapter 31, verses 31 to 36, is in two parts. Part A, part B. Now, many Jewish people, and I had the, the privilege in my life to ministering to thousands of Israeli people when I worked as a guide in Jerusalem, and I'd always recite this scripture to those Israeli people in my work. 90 to 95% of the thousands of Israelis that I spoke to had never heard of the promise of a new covenant to the house of Israel. It's not something that the rabbis are actually out there wanting them to hear. But do you know that conversely, I would say that 90% perhaps, I'm not going to state categorically or dogmatically, a large percentage of people in the Christian church do not realize that God has an eternal covenant promise to the nation of Israel. There's many people in the Gentile church are saying that because the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah, therefore God has rejected them as a nation. You see, according to the principles of covenant, that cannot be. So you have here an interesting scripture. Part A, many Jewish people have never heard of it. Some of the rabbis don't want them to hear of it. But let me tell you, when I spoke this particular perspective to many of those Israelis, it got them thinking because they'd never heard that there's a promise of a new covenant to their nation. And part B, here is the clear declaration of God that while the sun, the moon, and the stars are still up there, guess what? The nation of Israel will still exist as a nation. These two portions of scripture, part A and part B, thereafter became a platform for my life living in Israel. I spent so much of my time speaking to Israelis about the promise of the new covenant and so much time speaking to Gentile Christians, primarily Gentile Christians, about God's covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. And during many of those years, I had the privilege of guiding many, many Australian groups, Christian groups, government groups, trade groups, military groups, following in the footsteps of the light horse. And a great opportunity, this were secular tools in a sense, but so many great opportunities to speak about these particular perspectives, this perspective. Why is it that many people in the church, for instance, don't understand that God has an eternal covenant promise to the nation of Israel? Why is it that many people in the Gentile church, even until today, are still saying that God has finished with the nation of Israel. You see, it's a big, big mistake when you think that way. Because actually, it's a slap in the face to the character of God. This is all to do with the character of God. To understand why it's to do with the character of God, you have to understand the principles of covenant. And it's my understanding, for having lived in Israel for about 25 years, and then living back here again, having grown up here, and then having come back, is that many people in the West don't understand the principles of covenant because covenant is not part of the Western society and way of thinking today. So I'd like to go through, in the hour and a half I have left, 
You didn't put your Sunday lunches on, did you? You, you turned the, turn them off. I'd like to just briefly now go through and outline in brief a few of the principles of covenant. And if you are interested, the In Covenant with Jesus book goes quite a much more in-depth on these principles. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the first thing we have to realize here that you do not make a covenant. Covenants are only cut. So therefore in the Hebrew, it actually says, God speaking, karate brit. Not karate chop. God is speaking karate brit. I will cut a covenant. So in the ancient world, in the time of Jesus, the time of Jeremiah, the time of Moses, the time of Abram or Abraham, when a covenant was been instituted between two people, there was always going to be a sacrifice. And so what is a covenant first of all? Well, today, if you make an agreement, if it's a formal agreement, you'll do it possibly with a lawyer as a witness, and you'll sign, and then you'll have a stamp, okay, an official stamp, and that is a formal agreement, title deed, whatever. If you get married, the priest is there, the minister, the pastor, and there are witnesses, there's an entire audience that's a witness, and then there are a few people who will sign. They are witnesses that a formal agreement has now been made called the marriage covenant. When I grew up in the bush and two blokes made an agreement, it was a shake of the hands. And if there was somebody there to observe it as a witness, all the better. But usually when two men shook the hands, that was it. But in the good old days of the scriptures, when they wanted to do something formal, make an agreement, a solid, enduring agreement between two entities, two people, two nations, two empires. What did they do? They cut covenant. It's a legal institution, and that's what we need to comprehend as Christians. What we've entered into in, with Jesus is something which is legal in the eyes of God, with a witness as well. And so, for instance... In antiquity, and I'll jump out of the biblical mode into the secular mode for a second, if you don't mind. In antiquity, way back before Abram, and during the time of Abram and afterwards, there were huge empires in the entire Middle East region, from Egypt through the area of Israel today, Syria, up to Turkey, Iraq, that entire region. There were lots of entities, geopolitical, political entities. And oftentimes, they would need to have an agreement one to another. Oftentimes, it would be a small entity, a clan, or a small, weak nation. In order to survive, they would need to be allied to a larger nation. Now, Australia, for many years, had to be allied to Britain. And, of course, now it's allied to the United States. Many people might not like it, but the fact of the matter is, that's reality. We aren't big enough numerically, to stand on our own two feet. The reason Australia's got a good economy is really because of the American Navy and previously the British Navy. Okay, that's reality. And the reality was in those days for a small entity to survive, it needed to be allied to a larger entity. And so the smaller entity would go to the large one. Now, so we'll, we'll call the smaller entity for simplicity's sake 
the vassal, which really means a servant. And the bigger entity we'll call the great king. So the vassal will go to the great king and would say to him, I want to come under your protection. I want you to protect me. And so the great king would say, it's okay. There are several things that first of all have to happen. One, you have to agree to my constitution, to accept my constitution, my laws, my constitution. Okay? The small king might say yes, or the, the vassal might say okay, but perhaps a bit of horse trading, might be a little bit of an adjustment. Generally speaking, though, the servant would actually have to agree to accept the constitution of the great king. Then the great king would say, do you have any other political allegiances? Are you bound to any other political entity? If so, you have to break them off now. Because you cannot serve two masters. And so at that point, the vassal would accept to come completely under the authority of the great king. So if the great king suddenly decided he was going to go and make war against somebody else, guess who had no choice but to tag along? The vassal. But if somebody came to attack the small entity, the vassal, guess who had a responsibility now to come to their aid? The great king, you see? Two entities, different roles to play, different characters, yet they are bound to each other. They are basically two parts of now made a whole. Husband and wife, very similar. Different entities, different roles, different characters, yet they are bound together as one. And God sees them as one. And so that's what it was like in antiquity. So if after they've had their formal agreement and they've made their arrangements that, yes, we're going to accept your constitution and so on and so forth, then an animal or animals would be brought forth and would be killed in front of the two representatives of the two parties. It could be the great king himself. It could be the head of the smaller nation. But the animals would then be killed in front of them. Now, I'm sorry if what I'm going to say is a little bit gory, especially for little kids, um, but this is actually the background for our faith in Jesus. And so when the animals have been killed, they are then split, cut into two, two halves, and they are divided, two halves. And so what's in the middle in between? I once did this presentation in an Anglican church in the United States and had a beautiful red carpet straight down the middle. It was a great illustration. So in the middle down between the two pieces, there was lots of blood and everything else. Then the two representatives entering into this covenant, this agreement, would then walk up and down between the pieces and they would say these words or the very act of walking would do the same. May it happen to me, as has happened to this animal, if I break this covenant, if I break this agreement. Now, your feet are walking on the blood of the covenant. It's a visual aid. You're not going to forget that very easily unless you're a butcher. And most of us are not butchers. And so it's a visual aid, and it'll affect your psyche. And that was intentionally so. You had to understand in ancient society just how deep of a principle this was. 
This wasn't just a shake of the hand that you could think a day or two later, nobody saw me shaking that person's hand. They won't bother if I break it. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not like that at all. This was serious stuff. Very serious stuff. This is the stuff that Jesus understood when he was in the upper room in Jerusalem. This is the stuff that the Jewish disciples understood when they were with him in the upper room in Jerusalem. And this is the stuff that we need to know because we've entered into covenant with Jesus, the son of Joseph. And so, invariably, after that has happened, the meat or the halves of the sacrifice will be taken away and cooked and brought back and there will be a banquet, there will be a meal. Both entities would eat together, often from a common bowl. Now, for some years, Lex and I lived in a Muslim Arab village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And whenever I went to pay the rent to Mr. Badun, I'd have to wait until after his wife cooked a lovely meal. Lexi always cooked lovely meals as well, but this was really, really good food. I couldn't wait to the end of the month in one sense. And she had always come with two, with two big silver spoons and the landlord and I would sit together and eat from the common bowl. That was the time to discuss our relationship as tenant to landlord. And so in antiquity, that was how it was done. The two entities would now eat together to signify that, that what had been two is now made one and you're eating together. Oftentimes, then, there'll be an exchange of gifts one to another so you could remember the agreement you had entered into. For instance, if one party gave to the other a spear and said, put it on your wall, if you did that, every time you walked into the wall, what would you see? Not a spear, you would see. That's the evidence of the covenant I've entered into. Now, at that point, the two parties would then swear an oath. Now, sometimes this was actually done when they walked up and down between the pieces. In antiquity, that could have meant the same thing. But oftentimes, they would then also formally swear an oath in the name of their God. That was very, very important because the people believed that their God was the witness to what had just taken place. So there was always somebody looking to make sure that you were keeping the conditions of the covenant. It wasn't a matter of you walking away and saying, well, nobody's watching, I can do something wrong. No, because you always felt that your deity, your God was looking down. And there's many examples in scripture where um, a calamity came upon the nation of Israel because they violated the conditions of the covenant. So God was now looking on. Now, one case, for instance, oh, I better whisk on, otherwise I'll get told I have to sit down. I'm only halfway through my sermon. But anyhow, do you get the gist of it? It's a very, very serious undertaking. Now, even though we're living in the 21st century in a Western society, we actually have brought into a faith system of 2,000 years ago upon principles that are still existent today. That's what the covenant is all about. And so when it came to Jesus instituting the new covenant, as we get back to Jeremiah 31, there's going to be a sacrifice because it says that God will cut 
a new covenant. Now, as we know with Jesus, his body wasn't cut in two because it says that not one bone of his body shall be broken, but blood was shed. And in the time when God cut the covenant with the nation of Israel at Sinai, what we see there is blood was sprinkled over the people. So there were different ways it happened, but the principle is still the same. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be the cutting of the sacrifice. The covenant that God is cutting is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And afterwards it says again, the house of Judah. That's a nation, the nation of Israel. It doesn't mention us goyim, us Gentiles. If for some reason, historically, the Gentile church has had the arrogance to say to Jewish people, for close to 2,000 years, the Gentile church would say to Jewish people, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's okay, but you forget about your Jewishness. So when, for instance, through much of the period of the church history, a Jewish person came to faith in Jesus and went to the waters of baptism, they actually had to read a declaration, an oath. And in that declaration, in both the Eastern and the Western Catholic churches, those Jewish people actually had to renounce all of their Jewish identity, and they also had to declare that they would no longer have contact with Jewish people. I won't go any further on that. Christians need to understand their church history and what the church has actually said and done to the Jewish people, which is quite contrary to what's written here because the new covenant is actually with the nation of Israel and we aren't mentioned. We are not mentioned. Although God made a promise to Abram that all the families on earth would be blessed through him, we know that with Jesus it's going to happen and then the Council of Jerusalem, Jewish followers of Jesus, made a gutsy decision. And they said, henceforth, Gentiles do not need to convert to Judaism in order to enter into the new covenant movement. That's why you're all here without having to convert to Judaism. A decision made by Jewish followers of Jesus allowed us, Gentiles, to come in. What did the Gentile church then do in thanks? They turned it around and said, henceforth, when they became superior numbers, they said to the Jewish people, as a nation, you're now under God's curse. And to Jewish followers of Jesus, they said, you're no longer Jewish. You are now one of us. You're now a Gentile. Work that one out, if you can. Thank God, 200 years ago, in 1813, a bunch of 41 Jewish followers of Jesus in London said, that's far enough. And so began the modern Messianic Jewish movement, which is the reason why Three Sons of Abraham book was written, but we're not going to that now. The new covenant is instituted with the nation of Israel. And we Gentiles have been able to enter into this new covenant by personal confession of faith in Jesus. The same has to happen for Jewish people as well. Just being a Jew doesn't mean you have automatic salvation. You have to, first of all, confess faith in Jesus. And that's different to the covenant promises that God gave to Abram. There will always be a nation. But you see, within the nation of Israel has always been a remnant. There has always been a true group of followers. And that's what we see happening here. The new covenant, not everybody is going to accept that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Only some did. 
But that doesn't negate the other promises that God gave to Abram. Why? Because in the covenant that God cut with Abram, that covenant was covered or sealed with an oath in God's own name. And when God seals an oath to confirm a covenant, who's going to have the audacity to break that seal? The Gentile church leadership thought they could, but the existence of the modern state of Israel has thrown that one right out on its head, let me tell you. The existence of the modern state of Israel is confirmation that God keeps his covenant promises. But still, salvation, forgiveness of sins, only comes through confession of faith in Jesus. And so we see, if we go through Jeremiah 31, and Mike, I'll whiz on now, I'm getting close to the end of my time. He says in verse 32, verse 33, But this is the covenant that I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts. Law is how the English translation comes out. Guess what the Hebrew translation says? Torah. What is Torah? It's what the translators put as nomos into the Greek, law into the English. It doesn't mean the same thing. Torah basically means life-giving instructions. That's what the Mosaic Covenant is. With the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant God gave with Israel at Sinai, God said, if you want to live a good, wholesome, healthy life, here are some instructions to how to live a good, wholesome, healthy life. Right? But if you don't want to live a good, healthy life, then disobey what I'm telling you, and there will be consequences. So that's what the Torah basically is. God's not sitting there with a cattle product, giving everybody a prod every now and again. That's not the whole idea of it. God wants everybody to enjoy life. And so here they are. Here's the instructions. But if you disobey them, there's going to be consequences. And those consequences were called curses. But that's not God's intention. God's intention is that everybody would Follow these life-giving instructions. That's what Torah really means. And so God is saying here, I will put my Torah into their minds and into their hearts. Well, how's that going to happen? Tablets of stone inserted in. How's it going to happen? Ezekiel later told us it's by the Spirit of the Lord. And so... The great promise here. And God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Intimacy. God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Relationship. That's what it's all about. God wants relationship. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. One of the ways in which the concept to know is applied in Hebraic thought is, I'll give you an example, Adam knew Eve, and nine months later, there was a baby. Miriam, the mother of Jesus, said, how shall I be pregnant? I do not know a man. Okay, so I won't say anything anymore. But you know, in Hebraic thinking, that is one of the ways that they apply the word to know. It speaks of intimacy. And now we have this incredible promise that God says they shall know me, which means they shall have an intimate relationship with me. 
when we come to the point of accepting that Jesus died as our substitute, took the penalty that was due upon us because we were in Adam, when Jesus took that penalty upon himself and we confess that he's done it all for us, at that very point of confession, we enter into a personal covenant relationship with Jesus. You see, that's what covenant is all about. It's two entities coming together and becoming one. What's the marriage covenant? Two entities coming together and becoming one. They don't lose their distinctiveness, but they're still one. And so it is when we come to faith in Jesus. You don't believe in a doctrine. You come to follow a person. You come into intimate covenant relationship with the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And at that very point when you come into covenant with him, the spirit of God enters into your life. That's pretty intimate, is it not? But that's exactly what is told to us in Jeremiah 31. And our sins shall be forgiven and remembered no more. And we know that Jesus did this as he took that penalty that was due to us upon himself at the cross and rose again from the dead. So in my opinion, to really comprehend what covenant means, we have to understand the principles of covenant. And when we understand the principles of covenant, we have to realize that in the eyes of God, when he looks down upon us, he sees each of us, Gary, right? Got it right? When he looks down upon Gary, he doesn't see Gary anymore. He sees Gary, who is one in covenant union with his son, Jesus. That's your identity now. That's your identity. And your name? Um, Tanya. Tanya. Same with Tanya. He looks down and he doesn't see just Tanya anymore. He sees there's Tanya in covenant relationship with his son, Jesus. So when he looks down upon a white fella or a wadjula, I'm part Noongar, so a few of the Noongar words I do know is that the white fellows are called wadjulas. So when he looks down and sees a wadjula, he says, there's a wadjula in covenant with my son Jesus. But when he looks down and sees a black fella, he doesn't see a black fella. He looks down and sees there's that person who is in covenant relationship with my son Jesus. If that's the case... When God looks down upon the white person and the black person, does he see something like this? Does he see something like this? How does he see it? Absolutely equal. Absolutely equal. In the eyes of God, there's absolutely no difference between a white person, and it doesn't matter how long he's believed in the Lord, and a black person or somebody else from another ethnic background. He sees us all at that level when God looks down from heaven and he sees a high Anglican and then he looks down and he sees a low Anglican or a Pentecostal or a Baptist so as he begin to see all oh, that mobs up there and that mobs there and that mobs there what does he see if they are in covenant with Jesus what does God see total equality so the question that we all have to ask ourselves is How do we look at each other? 
In my opinion, if we understand the principles of covenant, we've got to try to look at each other the way that God looks upon us. And it's a wonderful story, and I'll finish up on this. It's a wonderful story of a man called Mephibosheth. Over here, you pronounce him some other way, Mephibosheth or something. Mephibosheth was his name, and he was the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, and he was lame in both feet. And because of God, of David's covenant with David, sorry, with Jonathan, because of David's covenant with Jonathan, Jonathan was killed. So according to the principles of covenant, David now has a responsibility to take care of the son of Jonathan. And so when David asked, are there any children or any descendants of Saul to whom I can show covenant kindness? And he was told, yes, there's Mephibosheth, but he's lame in both feet. Emphasis. He's lame. In that society, if you're lame, you're virtually a dead dog. Do you think David heard that? No. He said, find him. Bring him here. And when Mephibosheth, the one who was lame in both feet, was brought to David, David said, Mephibosheth, you shall sit at my table. And eat with me. Three times, four times actually, David said to Mephibosheth, the one who was lame in both feet, you shall eat at my table. And on one occasion, Mephibosheth actually said to King David, why are you interested in a dead dog like me? What was his self-perception? On a scale of zero to ten, what was his self-perception? Zero. Did, that, did Jesus hear that? I'm sorry, did David hear that? No, he couldn't give a hoot. All he knew is he had a covenant responsibility to the son of Jonathan with whom he was in covenant. And so then he says at the very end, you shall eat at my table with my sons. No, as one of my sons. As one of my sons. So the one who was in his own eyes, a dead dog, the one who was lame in both feet, David brought him up and adopted him into his family. I believe that's the way the Lord looks down upon us. It doesn't matter what we think of ourselves and what our social background was or is, in the eyes of God, we are at that level. And I believe that's the challenge that is there for us. How can we expect the world outside to change? How can we expect there to be no racism, no genocide? How can we expect those things to stop if we as the house of God, first of all, haven't got our house in order? And that's a challenge for me. I struggle with a poor self-perception because I never got the endorsement from my father that I would have liked. So every now and again it comes back to bite me, you know where? And I have to go back to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, show me what I am in your eyes. But we all have to, I believe, come to that point of understanding who we are in Jesus. And if you understand the principles of covenant, I think it makes it pretty clear. We are in covenant, folks. Listen to this. We are in covenant. We are in personal covenant relationship. We are one with the King of Kings the Lord of Lords, the King of the universe. Let me conclude. 
Who would not want to be in covenant relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the King of the universe? If you have not entered into this personal covenant relationship, may I encourage you before you leave here today to come to Mike, to come to any of the leadership here and to ask them to help you know how you can come into that wonderful covenant relationship and then to be filled with the spirit of the living God. And if you are struggling in any way with self-perception, with racism, or you're getting it the other way around, people are actually looking upon you, come, speak to the leadership. Ask them to pray with you that you can come to a point of understanding who you really are, who we really are in Jesus. Mike, can I ask you to come up? I'm just going to ask Mike to conclude with a prayer. Uh, Father, we do thank you that we serve you, the great King, that, Lord, you have entered into a relationship with us. Lord, if we're attacked, if we need supply, Lord, whatever need that we are, Lord, you have obligated yourself to come to our aid, even when we do not deserve it. Father, you have made an irreversible covenant. Lord, you are a promise keeper. Lord, you keep covenant, Lord, over and over again to a thousand generations. Lord, we see that historically fulfilled in the nation of the modern nation of Israel. Lord, we've seen the impossible, Lord, happen, Lord, in our faces today. Lord, you kept covenant. And Lord, did Israel fail? Yes, they failed and they failed and they failed. But Lord, you kept the promise. So, Lord, we can be encouraged today that no matter what we do, Lord, you'll keep your promise. Lord, you'll keep your promise to take us home, to adopt us, to share a common meal. Lord, I pray that we will walk in the revelation of the power of covenant. Lord, the covenant that I made with my wife. Lord, the covenant I made with my business partner. The covenant I made just with a friend that I'd turn up on a certain day to help. Lord, help us to be one that understands there's power in keeping holy agreements. We thank you. We ask that you bless us and admit us with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. And that was very rich, Kelvin. Thank you so much. Um, you just get a sense of the incredible distillation of knowledge that's taken place. And we miss out if we don't read that. You know, it, it is so powerful to understand that we have a God who's raised us up in covenant. And I know he didn't have time, but you know, when God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, he put Moses to sleep. And he says, I'll walk this, I'll walk between the cut bodies myself because he says, I am going to keep this. Didn't need to take Moses, uh, Abraham with him. Isn't that amazing? Abraham? Abraham. Yeah. Hezekiah. 13. Fantastic. I'd like to sing that new song again. I know we've gone a little bit long, but it's a great anthem. So thank you, team. We've got it all up there. Let's stand. I've just found a few more reasons to sing again a song to my God. God bless you. I'll sing.